my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, political football. With the European Championships upon us, England's preparations have been marred by some of their own supporters booing the taking of the knee. Brendan Batson, one of West Brom's three black players whose achievements did so much to challenge racism in the late 70s, says there is a wider picture here. We've got a home secretary that seems to be hell-bent on treating people less than animals. You know, I, I think it's disgraceful the way some of the politicians speak about things, about immigration in general. And yet, that's what I was hearing in the 60s. So, on that sense, I do despair. We'll also be hearing from Andrew Spence, producer of the award-winning podcast Coming In From The Cold. Plus, as the US recovers millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin after the latest ransomware attack from Russia, what risk do Kremlin-backed hackers pose to the UK? I think that the level of Russian government cyber pressure on this country continues to be very intense. And they're interested in everything from the way our nuclear weapons command and control works to trying to get inside the intelligence services, that's at the very high end, through to just hacking parliamentary emails and finding out ministers' WhatsApp messages and things like that. It's a good listen, guaranteed, so stay tuned. Before all that, a reminder that there's no media mogul or corporate interest pulling our strings. We're funded by people like you, who subscribe to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Subscriptions also support our brilliant news-breaking website and Byline TV. So come on, do the decent thing. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. The sound of England football fans. Many cheering, some booing, before the recent friendly against Romania as the team took the knee. The gesture originated in US sport in 2016 when Colin Kaepernick, a quarterback for San Francisco 49ers, protested against police brutality targeted at the black community. Kaepernick initially sat down during the playing of the national anthem to make his point, but on the advice of Nate Boyer, an ex-soldier and NFL player, he later opted to take the knee instead, on the basis that this would be seen as less disrespectful to serving members of the military. Now it has become a global symbol of opposition to racism, and England boss Gareth Southgate is adamant his players won't be deterred by the jeers. We are collectively really disappointed that it happened. We are totally united on it. We're totally um, committed to supporting each other. Um, We feel that more than ever, determined to take the knee through this tournament, we accept that there might be an adverse reaction and we're, we're just going to ignore that and move forward. Instead of backing Southgate, Boris Johnson refused to condemn the booing, whilst Conservative MP Lee Anderson has said he would boycott England if the players continued to kneel. And then, of course, there was Nigel Farage, who endorsed the idea of fans showing their hostility to an anti-racist gesture. The great British public have sussed it. They've woken up to the fact that taking the knee to the Black Lives Matter organisation isn't about equality of opportunity, isn't about racial justice, it's about a Marxist organisation that wants to defund the police force, that wants to bring down Western capitalism, bring down our whole way of life. Not for the first time Farage misses the point. Black Lives Matter 
isn't an organisation so much as a movement. Yes, there are organisations called Black Lives Matter, at least two of them in the UK, as well as the original US network. But it's also a hashtag and a slogan. It's a hand-drawn poster in my teenage daughter's bedroom window. Underlying it all is the belief that everyone should be treated equally, regardless of their colour. Rather than hearing any more from Nige, I thought it would be good to listen to Brendan Batson, who, along with Laurie Cunningham and Cyril Regis, spearheaded the breakthrough of black players at West Bromwich Albion in the late 1970s. What did he make of the booing by some England fans? Well, I wasn't surprised, to be quite honest. I thought there might be something like that. I mean, we have to go back to the old days when there was a section of fans booing the national anthem, the, the opposing team's national anthem, being very disrespectful to another country's flag, um, being disrespectful when they were asked to observe a minute's silence. So this wasn't surprising in a way. Very, very disappointing because my view is that they've come to support the England team, the England players. And if it's that's the players' wish and the management that they take the knee in trying to raise awareness of um, injustices and inequalities, it's not just about racism, um, it's about all forms of discrimination then they should be respectful to that, even though they may not be there to, what I've heard them say, no, we're there to watch a game of football, not to have a political agenda. Well, put that to one side. Just be respectful for 30 seconds a minute. What's Where's the harm in that? And also, I think we should focus more on the applause the players receive, trying to drown out the booing, and we shouldn't be pandering to the mob. At the same time, though, it is an anti-racist gesture. So given your phenomenal playing history, but also the horrendous racism that you had to confront, were you not a bit depressed to hear people booing an anti-racist gesture? Disappointed. I'm not, I'm not depressed. I'll tell you what, Adrian, because I've been at this for so long, it's been little, little steps. And it's up to the individual. I mean, this came about because of Colin Kaepernick, the um, American football player, taking a knee. He started off that symbolic gesture. It's little steps. What you're looking for, the disappointment, I despair at the lack of action following these sort of symbolic gestures. It doesn't seem to be an appetite to really do something to address it because when we had the, um, the gatherings in Birmingham over the BLM movement, I went along to a couple. One was in um, Centenary Square. The other one was in Victoria Square. And it was great. I was uplifted by seeing all these young kids of different races, different colours, a lot of students, all with the same message, big placards, taking a knee. It was really exciting. I got quite emotional in a way. But then you think, what else? And you see some young students on TV giving their views, and I'm thinking, they're almost saying the same words I said when I was first starting off in my professional career. But sometimes I think people don't understand that we've had to deal with this all our lives. It isn't something new that's just suddenly come about. We've had to deal with it. I mean, I was subjected to racial abuse from kids, white kids going passing cars, shouting names at me and telling me to go back to my own country and all that sort of stuff. You know, stuff is still going on. Now, it takes politicians. You know, I don't want to get too involved in certain politics, but I mean, we've got a home secretary that seems to be hell-bent on treating people less than animals. You know, I, I think it's disgraceful the way some of the politicians speak about things, about immigration in general. And yet, that's what I was hearing in the 60s. So on that sense, I do despair. In another way, I think it's great that people keep on 
fighting the battle. And it's going to be a long fight because we're going to have to look across the pond and see what goes on there. And they've been at it longer than us. Some of the critics of taking a knee say that Black Lives Matter supports a Marxist organisation. Are you a Marxist? Are the people supporting Black Lives Matter's protests that you attended Marxist, as far as you're aware? I joined in because I thought this is a, I thought it might be a seminal moment when you see all these different, the different mixes all joining in with the same message across the world, not just, not just in Birmingham or England, but across the world. At George Floyd's service, funeral service or memorial service, there was a gentleman, another pastor, I think, um, I've forgotten his first name, Williams. He was in a wheelchair in his 90s. He marched with Martin Luther King that terrible day at the Selma March when um, the protesters were being bullwhipped and charged down with horses, etc. And he felt there was a real energy and a real moment of change upon us. And I thought, well, if he's seen with his own eyes what he's seen and experienced, and he feels optimistic, then why shouldn't I be optimistic that there's going to be a little bit of a change? As we go on and on and on, you don't see that change. You're thinking, right, you've got to, you just got to stick at it. I do not necessarily agree entirely because I don't understand it entirely, the BLM movement. What I do know is that they've raised awareness about, not just about the race inequalities, but other forms of uh, discrimination, inequalities, poverty, you know, all, all these sort of things. We see with, co- with the coronavirus and the vaccinations, oh, the, the, the developed countries have got it. Yeah, we're all saying, how well, we're doing it in England. And yeah, you've got the poorer countries. You know, I've heard the news this morning that even if they sent all these um, vaccines, they may be wasted because they haven't got the infrastructure to actually inject the population. So I think there are, there are lots of inequalities in this world. And mine has always been focused on, on uh, anti-racism, but there are lots of inequalities in this world. A few weeks ago, football clubs took part in a social media blackout for a weekend following persistent racist abuse against certain footballers. But of course, they're all back there now on social media. And when you talk about the the reality of racism today in the UK and in the Western world, social media is one of the major transmitters of that. And yet football clubs themselves are complicit with social media. They profit from social media. They engage with social media to boost their brands. The reality, I think, is that those tech companies in Silicon Valley and California, they don't give a damn about what we're doing here, the, the numbers. They want the controversy. In a way, the more con- controversy they see online on these uh, platforms, the, the better it is for them and for the advertisers. I think there's a lot of patronising going on when it comes to we want to do this, we want to do that. I'm looking at the moment at the G7 group agreeing to have this 15% taxation on the um, companies like Amazon and, and Facebook, etc. Now they're all getting together as a powerful group and it looks as though that's going to happen. Why can't we address that in this way as well and address those things that we, we talk about, those inequalities? Uh, there's a feeling that there isn't this real appetite for change because money dictates, you know, and there's a lot of money involved in these companies. They spend fortunes in terms of lobbying behind the scenes. You've got to keep, you've got to keep up the fight. There's no question about that. Should England carry on taking the knee? This is a matter for the individual 
and for the collective. And if that's what they want to do as individuals and collectively and the, the, uh, the management are saying to them, look, are we right behind you on this? Yes, I think they should because that is what they feel is right and they're the ones in the heat of it at the moment. Personally, I think that we have to see more than this symbolic gesture. I think it's been great. I think it will um, run its course come the end of this season, the end of these, this tournament, which sort of really sort of closed down the season. And when you start again next season, I think it will have run its course because, you know, I don't want to be pandering to the mob. I don't think they should be booed off from doing it, but they'll have to make a decision themselves. Brendan Batson, former professional footballer with West Bromwich Albion, now president of EU Athletes and chair of the Professional Players Federation in England. Underlying the gesture of taking the knee is a belief in systemic or structural racism, the idea that society has an unconscious, inbuilt bias against people of colour. According to the latest figures for England and Wales, there were six police stop and searches for every 1,000 white people, compared with 54 stop and searches for every 1,000 black people. Black people are overrepresented in the prison system and are much more likely to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. To talk more about this, I spoke to Andrew Spence, radio producer at Talk Sport, who founded the company Unedited and created the award-winning podcast Coming In From The Cold about the history of black players in English football. His team is Aston Villa and he's been sharing his story of being black and British and a football supporter. I'm 43. So my first memory of the England football team is the 86 World Cup and John Barnes coming on against Argentina as a substitute and changing the game. And to me, before that, the English football teams were always all white players, weren't they? Growing up British, you've never always felt British. Like my family from the Caribbean. So when the cricket team would come over, that's who you were supporting because that was the thing to make everybody happy because you never feel that belonging in back then and still do when they ask you where you come from there's always that where do you really come from like where do you come from and you say oh, i come from birmingham I'm, I'm english and then you know there's that is that that feeling of, of being english i think obviously that's changed now for this generation they feel more ingrained and probably more british for most of them i can't speak for all of them but i'm a first generation immigrant because my parents are immigrants i'm the first generation that, that was actually born here so it's a kind of it's a hard makeup of identity because what is Britishness? What is Englishness? Do I feel it? I think it's only recently when the World Cups come along, I feel comfortable wearing an England shirt and, and whatnot and supporting the English, England team because you see people that look like you. But in the 80s, it was very, as you know, Adrian, it was, there was a hard right wing following that followed the England team abroad. And it was very British bulldog. The Brit- it was more British flags then in the 80s. And there was actually St. George, which is kind of crazy. I mean, it's a very hard way to actually kind of say how you feel being British because our identity is so mixed up. We obviously have our links to the Caribbean or if you've got Asian parents, South Asia, and you have that whole thing where people get upset and say, why are you supporting the West Indies cricket team? You should be supporting England. You, we have that melting pot where you can support, you know, you support the England football team, but you support the West Indies cricket team. and You, you know what I mean? Because we have that background because we still hold on to that. It's like people who are in Irish or Scottish descent, especially the Irish, when England didn't get to the World Cup in America, how many of those people that we knew were Irish were supporting the Ireland team in America? <laughs> that sense of not feeling British or not feeling fully British or not feeling British all the time, 
did that come because your parents looked to the Caribbean? Did that come from anything in British society? I think it's people saying, go back home, go back to where you come from. And then the whole point is, but I am here. This is where I come from. I'm from Birmingham. So where, where can I go? Because as a first generation immigrant, you go back to Jamaica or Trinidad where my parents are from. They look at you as English. So you don't have, you don't know where you have a place because they're like, they'll call you English. But when you come back to England, they're like, go back home. So go back to where you come from. So you, you kind of stuck in that middle of identity. So it's finding your identity. And that's the hard part of what many people who are children of immigrants, the first generation people that came Windrush in the 60s and stuff, is where their place in society is and who they identify with. Because you're at home, you still have the cultural things that you do that have been brought from the Caribbean or if you're from south asia india and pakistan you still have those things but they're blended with westernized british life so it's all it's just like a melting pot it's the whole word multiculturalism that is that is my household that will be somebody else's household that will probably be your that is your household because you'll go out for a curry you'll go out for a caribbean or whatever or you know what i mean big cities are known for having a melting pot of different cultures the word black players who played for England before John Barnes, Laurie Cunningham and Cyril Regis from my team, West Brom, Viv Anderson, who was the first black player to make a starting appearance for England. But for you, John Barnes was the breakthrough player. John Barnes was Jamaican. And my dad's Jamaican, so you have that link. I didn't really know about him until he... I kind of knew about him at Watford, but when he came to Liverpool, that's when you knew about him. And a lot of my friends supported Liverpool because of John Barnes, basically. My hero was Mark Walters and Tony Daly from Aston Villa. I loved them. But John Barnes was the next level, like you said. You never had any black players that had gone to the top teams. When we uh, interviewed Brendan Batson for coming in from the cold, one of the lines he says is when he spoke to John Barnes, he was like, please don't mess it up, John. Make sure you, you, you do a good job because... You know, nobody got to the top tier teams and he was a player that just took it to the next level. But he had a, a strange relationship because he, he did that golf against Brazil and the American art. And then he, he could never reach that heights and everybody thought that he was going to be that player. And I think it kind of was a burden on him. And then obviously he will say people questioned his patriotism to England. He has a kind of weird relationship with the England team and a, a weird relationship with the English public in general. But yeah, he, he's one of the icons, isn't he? John Barnes, and then you have the Arsenal team that came in the late 80s. Milt Michael Thomas, Rocky Road, Castle Paul Davis. And you started watching football live in the 90s. Now, I'm a veteran of watching football in the 70s, and at my team, West Brom, players like Cyril Regis, Laurie Cunningham, Brendan Batson were revered by our supporters. And as people will know, if they're aware of this aspect of football history they were bombarded with bananas subjected to the most horrific racial abuse involving many thousands of people over many years sadly this became routine at English football grounds for a period of time that thankfully subsided when you first went to games how was that experience for you I was quite scared to go to my first game I'm not going to lie because your parents, my parents, had always said to me, never go to a game. No, I used to always ask my dad. My dad wasn't a football fan. He was more into cricket. But I had a um, godfather that was a West Brom fan, Warwickshire season ticket holder. He was proper into sports. I would always ask my dad, oh, can Uncle Dennis take me? Uncle Dennis was a white man. 
And he would always say, say to me, no, 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 you can't take it to a football match. And this was in the 80s and the mid-90s. And then obviously I was about 21, 20, and then I went to Villa Park. Again, it was Villa versus Everton was the first game I went to. And I was quite nervous because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if there was going to be, still be the kind of racial overtones, the racial chanting, the, the abuse and stuff. And I, I never actually saw any of that. And I, I felt quite comfortable when I went. So I was like, oh, this isn't a bad experience. There's still the abuse there, obviously, because that's football, unfortunately. But after that, I was like, I could go to more games. And I think the Premier League changed that because it was the Premier League and it was more for families and it had taken it from the working class to the middle class, which to some people, that's what ruined the game. But that's a different whole conversation. But once I got into it and I realised it, and another thing, Adrian, when you watch football on the TV, it's such a different experience to watching it live. Did you think somebody's going to talk or you think you're going to see a different angle? Because I'd never, <laughs> I'd never been. So watching it was great. At Villa Park was great. Had no problem. The, like I said, in Villa team had black players and the Everton team had black players. It was fine. So I, to me, I was like, oh, what's the whole issue about it? But then obviously there's things that you hear about and things that I hadn't seen that were still going on. But generally football culture started to change in the late 80s and into the 90s. The wholesale racist booing and singing declined significantly. And I think most people would accept that, although there has been a, a perhaps a loss of atmosphere at some grounds because of all-seater stadiums, there has been a much healthier atmosphere in many other respects in, in football stadiums in England. So when England players took the knee ahead of the recent internationals and supporters booed that... Were you surprised? No, because we've been talking about this for a while. When I was at TalkSport, I produced a show with Darren Lewis, sports writer for The Mirror, Steams, Hugh Wiesencroft, and a few of the players that we have, like Emil Heskey, Gabby Agbonahor. And we were saying, if England take the knee, uh, coming up to the Euros and stuff, it, people are going to boo and it will kick off. And we were right. I wasn't surprised. I was not surprised at all that that would happen. Why not? Because of the connotations that go with the knee, that people think it's a Marxist thing, people think it's defunding the police because of Black Lives Matter. Now, don't get me wrong, there are certain elements of Black Lives Matter that took that and take that view, that Black Lives Matter as a banner as a whole is about racial equality, it's not about Marxism. Because it's quite, you have to laugh because the irony of calling football players Marxists they're the antithesis of the opposite of Marxism because they make the most money and they're all about free enterprise. So it makes me laugh because the argument's quite redundant if you really break it down. But obviously, there's the, you know, the connotations that come with it. I'm not surprised because when it happened at Millwall, when the booing, and there was booing on the last day of the Premier League uh, from certain assets of, of fans. And some people just don't like it. I don't understand why somebody taking a knee really gets people so upset. I really don't understand it because... You know, if I saw you in the room taking the knee and I walked in, I'd be like, Adrian, why are you taking the knee for? And then I'd have to find out why. But And then if you told me the reasons why, I might not agree with it, but I wouldn't get really upset and say, oh, my God, why are you doing this as an affrontage or whatever to it? Because it's your opinion. But I still don't understand why it gets so some people so riled. And yet some players say it's not powerful enough or it's been diluted. It kind of shows that it hasn't because it's still it's still really annoying people. I still come across the argument that white lives matter and I almost lose my 
patience with people but if I do come across that and I do quite often just in my daily life when I have these discussions I try and patiently explain to people that my understanding of the slogan black lives matter is not that black lives matter more than any other lives but if you take any objective view of history in western europe black lives have mattered less and if you look at indices like imprisonment mental health it would appear that black lives still matter less so to me the slogan black lives matter isn't about saying black lives matter more but it is an acknowledgement that black lives shockingly tragically have mattered less to those in authority in this kind of country is that how you understand it it is it's historical it's based on colonialism the empire, the slave trade, but people don't want to go back because in order to go forward, you have to kind of revisit the past to heal the wounds of the past to, to go forward and educate. And you'll always get that line of why do you keep going on about what happened in the past that happened in the past, move forward. But to right the wrongs of the past in some way, that's the only way we're going to move forward is to educate why people are feeling this way, why there are movements, exactly what you said. It's not that all lives don't matter. It's just that we want equality and black lives mattering as much as white lives, as all lives. But at the present, there isn't because obviously, like you said, in the judicial system, in the health system, in all types of systems, it's like a race. If you're if you in a hundred meter race, it doesn't matter if you're Usain Bolt. It's like having two weights on you, and you're far ahead in the race. We're never going to catch you up. So you know you got to take away the shackles and things that are obstructing people to have an equal footing. And that can be applied to all other things. We talk about we want equality among the sexes. We want equality among people's sexuality. But for some reason, when it comes to the issue of colour, you know, I'm not saying, you know, one is more prevalent than the other, but people just don't want to have that conversation. It is an uncomfortable conversation, but it's a conversation that has to be had and people need to be educated and those people that are booing, they need to be educated. They need to come along with the ride for us. I don't want to give up on them, but you know we're never going to get rid of racism completely in the world. That's never going to happen. And people that think that are deluded, there's always going to be the minority. But we have to educate people to enable us to move forward. Because if we don't, we're just going to keep having the same discussion going around, around and around, and then it gets tiring. Yeah, people's eyes tend to glaze over if you use a phrase like structural racism. But if you look at the imprisonment figures, if you look at mental health figures, if you look at educational outcomes, for certainly for many black groups, for want of a better phrase, whatever the recent Sewell report commissioned by the government says, yeah. black people themselves know that that legacy of racism, of slavery and colonialism still plays out in our society and on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, the word unconscious bias, which again, people will probably hate that, and the word woke and all those kind of tangible words that, that have just come out of nowhere. Unfortunately, it, it's happened. Structures have been built up by one particular race. And then obviously it's solidified that. And unfortunately, there's a gap glass ceiling for a lot of other people. And until you break through that, and until the word diversify and diverse things up, then you're going to have a different way of thinking and you can move forward. But there's just, just such a, a pushback on it to discuss it. I mean, the whole thing with the cricketer who 
his historical tweets came back. What's his name? Is it Ollie Robinson, is it? Ollie, Ollie Robinson. The government have got involved. The Prime Minister said it was over the top and so forth. The things have to be discussed and people need to be, you know, not punished for life, but they need to be told what they've done wrong and this is not the way forward. To me, I wouldn't want him playing for England the next game. I don't think that's right. So you have to have some kind of, not penalty, but you have to be taken to task for what you've done, even if it's in historically, because if it was somebody else had done it, the same would happen. And he's a sports person in the public eye, so you have to be held accountable. Accountability is a word that a lot of people don't like, <laughs> from, from us everyday mortals to MPs. That's one thing. Nobody wants to be held accountable for anything. and Somebody has to be held accountable for something for us to move forward, in my opinion. You made this fantastic award-winning documentary series coming in from the cold, which told the history of black players in English football. And in telling the history of black players in English football, you partly told the history of racism in English football. It has tainted the game really from the earliest days. When you look at that big span of history that you encompass and you look at this ongoing controversy, how do you kind of balance the two? It's a shame because it seems to me that kind of nothing has really changed. What I noticed of doing the story is it was more overt and now it's become more covert. Just because you're not saying the N-word or the P-word or this and that doesn't mean that there's still unconscious or questionable things that being saying or structural racism. I mean, in football, you know, how many black managers do we have? How many black coaches do we have? How many people in the boardroom? And we talk about that in the, in the final episodes. Again, it's like that. In America, where that news reader said to LeBron James, just shut up and dribble. So, you know, that's that kind of thing. Players don't don't bring politics into sport. Sorry, politics has been in sport for a long time. This is not the first time it's happened. It's not going to be the last. These sportsmen and women, this is the kind of platform they can use to show it. And in football, football has this football has a lot of problems. <laughs> has a lot of problems. We love the game. It has issues with money, with greed, with how it treats people, so forth and so forth. And and racism is one of those things that is a major blot on the copybook of football. And I think it's tried to kind of move away from it. It's done a half-decent job, but it's trying to like, you know, when you tell a teenager to clean its bedroom, it's trying to just push everything under the bed and say, oh, everything's clean, but you, you go look under the bed and there's a whole heap of rubbish and crap under there. And I think that's what football's trying to do. It's trying to sweep it under the carpet. And it's doing all these things and just doesn't know what to do when it could just be stronger and more stricter on its punishments and so forth. That, But then again, lines up to how the structures of the upper echelons of football are, are done. It's, it's a lot of old white men making decisions on racism that's never affected them. They've never been through that. You know, until you bring diverse set of people to come in to make those decisions, then you might ha- make some strides. I'm not saying it will be done straight away, but. This is going to take a long time to fit. And then with the players going on a knee, I mean, it, it just highlights what, it just highlights how much division sometimes there can be in football. It is tribal anyway. But it's just a shame that the England team's getting booed because they're taking the knee. But then when the game starts, they're getting cheered when they score a goal. But every time before a game, they're going to get booed because they're going to do this. That's, that's going to affect the team. That's going to affect our chances. I mean, is it a? You got to question whether it's a good idea for to, for England to continue doing it because is it good for us to take the moral high ground? Um, Southgate and the and the boys. That's that's the question we're going to have. Well, put that to you. Should England carry on taking a knee at the Euros? Yeah, I, I think we should. If it's to the detriment, 
of our progression. I'm going to say something controversial. A lot of my friends who are black have said the same thing. Some of them said that they'd be happy if England fail and don't get out of the groups because this has just shown us up to be kind of how how they are. I mean, I wouldn't go that far in saying that, but I think we should still do it. But it's just a shame that it's just one minute you're booing, you're booing the fans and the next minute you're trying to get behind them. I mean, it's just such a weird relationship that the fans will have with the players. And I don't know what kind of lasting effect it would have on the players and what lasting effect it would have with the England team. Andrew Spence, producer of Coming In From The Cold, which is well worth seeking out via your usual podcast provider. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times monthly newspaper. To find out how to subscribe, go to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. This is an excerpt from Russian-based YouTube channel OSINT, short for Open Source Intelligence. It's an exclusive interview with a computer hacker who claims to be part of a group called R-Evil, who says he and his colleagues have earned more than $100 million using ransomware. That's software which lays siege to your computer unless you pay a ransom usually in the cryptocurrency Bitcoin. The US recently claimed a rare victory against groups like this when it recovered a Bitcoin payment made to hackers who had forced the temporary closure last month of the Colonial Pipeline in Georgia, which supplies half the fuel for America's East Coast. More recently, another cyber attack forced the closure of US operations at the world's largest meat processing company, JBS. And again, Russian hackers were blamed by the White House. It's not only money, though, that the hackers are after. A report last year by the House of Commons Intelligence and Security Committee warned that the Kremlin employs, or otherwise sanctions, gangs of cyber criminals to garner UK state secrets and threaten key national infrastructure. To find out more, I've been talking to journalist Edward Lucas. He wrote The New Cold War in 2008, and more recently a book called Cyberphobia. He's a senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis in Washington, D.C. Does he accept the view, which is shared both by the UK and the US, that the Russian government supports some of these attacks and turns a blind eye to others? It's absolutely credible that cyber criminals in Russia operate with the tacit consent of the Russian authorities. And one quite good indication of that is that these sort of attacks don't happen inside Russia. The ransomware criminal industry devotes its energies outside Russia and actually increasingly tries to be selective about its targets. So there seems to be a kind of consensus that you don't go after health services, for example, because that's too politically sensitive. It's best to go after unloved or unlovable government organisations like the police or corporate targets. What about the Russian government's involvement then in cyber espionage or some kinds of what you might term cyber war that were identified by the Intelligence and Security Committee as a threat to the UK? There's quite a difference between ransomware attacks, which are basically simple technology, cleverly deployed, and what we see in the cyber espionage field, which is highly sophisticated technology, cleverly deployed. So ransomware is childishly easy. You just get someone to click on something, it scrambles the computer, 
then you send them a message, they send you money, you send them a key, it unscrambles the computer. It's really not very complicated. And the, if you like, the value added, if one can call it that in this, is in the target acquisition, trying to find people who have got really weak security and will pay lots of money to get out of this sort of pickle. And that's really quite different from the sort of things that GCHQ, NSA and their other international counterparts get up to. That involves really advanced software attacks deployed with extreme cleverness, often using human assets as well. And although they're both worrying and they both start with the word cyber, they're really quite different. What do we know about the extent of Russian-backed or Russian-sanctioned activity in that field in the UK? Well, we know that the cyber crime industry is making tens of billions of pounds in its global revenues and that British companies and British public institutions have been targets of that because they're reported. It's very hard to get the whole picture because many people who are attacked just decide to pay up and maybe they're insured and the insurance company pays up. It's not like plane crashes where you have a really pretty accurate picture of, of what's going on. I think that Britain's probably got rather better cyber hygiene than some other countries, although that's not saying very much. In 2018, the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK said that Britain, along with its allies, had identified a campaign by Russian military intelligence of what it described as indiscriminate and reckless cyber attacks on this and other countries. Is that continuing? I think that the level of Russian government cyber pressure on this country continues to be very intense. And they're interested in everything from the way our nuclear weapons command and control works to trying to get inside the intelligence services, that's at the very high end, through to just hacking parliamentary emails and finding out ministers, WhatsApp messages and things like that. Because there's a very wide range of uses to to which these can be put. So Putin would be interested to know whether we're targeting Russia with nuclear weapons and how we do it and that kind of very high-end stuff. But the intelligence services might also be interested to know which MPs or public figures have been misbehaving because they've been misbehaving, maybe they're open to blackmail and therefore they could be a target for an intelligence officer looking to cultivate and ultimately recruit and run them. So one of the problems with cyber is cyber is a vector. It's a way of getting from a perpetrator to a victim. But the range of perpetrators can be very wide and the range of victims can be very wide. And in a way, it's a bit like saying I'm worried about petrol because petrol goes into cars and cars can be used to do all sorts of things. And indeed they can, but one's always got to try and break it down a bit and say, well, who's doing, you know, someone is doing something to somebody else and they're doing so for a motive. And let's try and find out what that is. And then we can understand the problem a bit better. What's Putin's motive then if he is sanctioning these cyber attacks on the UK and the US? Well, we've got a fairly good idea of what the Kremlin wants, which is to weaken the West. It doesn't want to destroy the West because it needs the West. It needs the West as a trading partner, as a place to launder money, educate its children, go on holiday. But what they don't want is the West being in a situation where it's a threat to the stability and survival of the regime 
in Russia. And so they want to weaken multilateral organizations like the EU and NATO. They want to weaken countries' decision-making, particularly on issues such as sanctions and anti-kleptocracy, anti-money laundering things. They want to make sure that the Russian energy can be sold on advantageous terms to them rather than on uh, with tarsome transparency rules imposed by the customer and so on and so forth. So there's a very opportunistic approach really. If there's something that's a threat, they'll try and counter it. They'll build up assets where they can in the hope that they'll be there and useful when they need. And meanwhile, they can get on with their main job, which is looting Russia for their own enrichment. Of course, Russia says that these are false claims, attempts by the West to whip up anti-Russian sentiment, Russophobia. Is there a danger here that we're perhaps creating a bogeyman out of Russia? On the whole, when you wake Western decision makers up to the threat from Russia, they're rather cross about this because it will involve them in decisions that will cost them money and create extra work. And I've spent nearly 30 years trying to warn people that the Cold War didn't really end in 1991 and we've still got very serious problems with Russia and indeed with China. And that's been quite an uphill slog. I think it's true that there is a kind of lazy, particularly in America, there's a sort of lazy willingness to blame everything on Russia and to overlook the fact that Democrats have lost elections because people are fed up with their Democratic presidents and Democratic members of Congress, rather than because they actually were, it was all done by the Russians. But the fact that, you know, that maybe some late, lazy claims are made doesn't mean the Russians don't interfere. And we've seen a very clear example of this. They hacked the Clinton campaign's emails and they released those emails in a way that did a lot of damage and made the Clinton campaign look duplicitous and untrustworthy. And they did that with the enthusiastic help of the US media, which only afterwards realised that they'd been played. But that really did happen. That was There's no doubt Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, two Russian hacking groups, were caught on the computers and networks concerned. And Russia always says, oh, no, it wasn't us. And it's true that attribution is often quite difficult in cyber attacks, but it's not impossible. In this case, the attribution was pretty good. Can we quantify the scale of attacks? It's difficult to quantify anything in the world of cyber espionage because it's inherently secret. And if we find out that something's going on, we may decide not to talk about it because we don't want to give them the idea they've been spotted. So that's a bit like saying how many Russian spies are active in Britain. The only people who know that and you know, have a very strong reason not to, not to tell us. On the, the sabotage front, again, if the Russians think they've sabotaged, you know, are in a position to sabotage one of our systems and we've spotted them, highly advantageous for us to say not to say anything because we know that if they press the button, it won't work, but they don't know that. So that's, again, you know, a sort of secret. The level of cyber crime, we should make it a public duty, I think, to disclose if you've been the victim of this sort of cyber crime because it makes life a bit safer for everybody else. So it's rather like aviation. We don't allow the aircraft companies and manufacturers to cover up their safety data, even if it's embarrassing. We encourage them to make it public as a sort of hygiene measure. And I think that we, we could do with much better cyber hygiene. But at the moment, if you're attacked and your insurance policy covers you, you pay up, the insurance company pays you, and um, nobody's any the wiser. And so we don't know. But the, the estimates are, the, are that it's a, this is an, an industry, the criminal industry of cybercrime is tens of billions of dollars. And I think that may possibly be an underestimate. I've seen, I've seen estimates that are much, much higher. I know you're also concerned about China as well and its role in cyber espionage. 
Well, China does many of the things that the Russians do. And I should actually say that the biggest cyber heist in history seems to have been by the um, North Koreans. And we shouldn't neglect them. They tried to steal the entire hard currency reserves of the Bangladesh Central Bank and then launder it through a casino in Manila and very nearly got away with it. So it's not just the Russians. I think that the, the Chinese, the big thing for the Chinese, which is a bit different from Russia, is the theft of intellectual property. And as Russia doesn't really have manufacturing industry, there's no point in them stealing intellectual property because they wouldn't be able to do much. But China is the workshop of the world. And if they can steal the design for a you know, new telly with you know, flatter, even bigger screen or a new fighter aircraft or new anything, really, something new to do with electric cars or graphene or really any sort of form of advanced technology, they do steal it. And then they um, produce their own version of it. And this makes Western companies very very cross. And the Chinese say, well, we're recovering from a century of humiliation. So we're going to have to cut a few corners as we as we catch up. So that's a, a sort of huge, big lump of what China does. The other thing which is really important is China's building vast data banks of foreigners. And they're getting mobile phone data, biometric data like our faces and the way we walk, so-called gate analysis, payment data and so on, to try and build up a picture of the most important billion or so people in the outside world because they want to be out, identify people who might be spying on China or also people who may be campaigning against China. And then they can get into their emails and find out what they're up to and, if necessary, stop them. How does this threat impact the lives of ordinary people? I did a radio program the other day where I was interviewing people whose lives have been absolutely ruined by cybercrime. Um, people who'd lost their entire savings or going to spend their old age in destitution because of the weakness in our way in which our system enables people to have their savings stolen with just a, you know, a phone call and a few mouse clicks. It's only a threat until it happens to you, and then it becomes a major inconvenience or possibly a tragedy. And do you think governments aren't taking this threat seriously enough? Well, it's not just governments, it's companies. You know, the, the, the person I interviewed was a victim of a hack at TalkTalk, Talk, and because of the hack at TalkTalk, Talk, their personal data had been stolen. And with that, they had been sold to criminals, and the criminals were then able to impersonate TalkTalk, Talk, phone the person up and say, you're due a refund. And this poor old man in Cardiff thought, oh, that's nice, and getting a refund from TalkTalk, Talk, and dutifully did what he was told to do. With the result, his bank account was drained, and he lost his life savings. And TalkTalk Talk were totally uninterested in refunding him, and neither was his bank. Now, I, I would be in favour of placing a much stronger duty on banks to refund people who are victims of fraud. And I also think that if you're the custodian of people's data and it's stolen, you should face very serious criminal charges and permanent professional disgrace. And this doesn't seem to have happened because Dido Harding, who was in charge of TalkTalk Talk at the time, has gone off to another quite important job running the NHS Test and Trace app. So we need to really mind about this. If, if someone runs a restaurant that poisons people and makes them ill and ruins their lives, they certainly don't run restaurants and they probably have a pretty sticky time of it. And we should take, treat the same um, take the same approach to people who practice poor data hygiene and allow people's data to be stolen and used in a way that ruins the lives of the people it belongs to. Edward Lucas. I'm Adrian Goldberg and this has been the Byline Times podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Byline Times. Get more information at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>